Families of missing persons deal with the range of emotions. One minute there's hope and the next hopelessness. Days, months, and years can be spent wondering where their loved one is or how they disappeared. My name is Bree and I will be shedding some light on the missing persons case of Denise Bowden on this episode of Gone Cold, New Hampshire. Before diving into some details, I would like to mention that Denise does have living relatives and they would like to keep their private life private. I will be discussing this case in a respectful manner and maintaining those lives private. Respect is important, according to Joelle Donnelly Wiggins. She's the victim advocate for New Hampshire's cold case unit. Can you imagine just like all of a sudden realizing you're a totally different person and not only that, it, it turns into this big national case. Um, this is not what she ever envisioned or wanted for her life. Denise Bonin was last seen in 1981 on Thanksgiving. At this family gathering, she was 23 years old and expecting a baby girl. Denise had brown hair and brown eyes. She was the family girl next door. The man with her that day was Bob Evans. We later learned that wasn't his name. We also learned that Bob Evans, whose real name is Terry Rasmussen, was also nicknamed the Chameleon Killer. I imagine that was a typical Thanksgiving. Good feast and family chatter. When someone brings a significant other to a family gathering, it is expected for that person to be interrogated. Questions of background info or hobbies begin to fill the air. Where is your family from? What do you do for a living? Denise's family did not expect Thanksgiving to be the last time to enjoy her company, especially with Christmas around the corner. What would come later would be a nightmare for the family. They learned their loved one had gone missing. And remember, the last person she was seen with was not who he claimed to be. Not only was the man calling himself Bob Evans lying about his true identity, but the family learned a couple years later after Denise's disappearance that the man was a serial killer, and he was linked to a notorious New Hampshire cold case, often referred to as a Bearbrook case. I would think that not knowing where your loved one is with no real leads would make a family lose some hope. Then, finding out the last person she was with turned out to be a serial killer would make anyone lose all their hope. Rhonda Randall and her brother, Scott Randall, have a passion for solving cold cases. They researched and investigated the Bearbrook case in their spare time, and that helped the police department tremendously. You may have heard of a very popular podcast by NHPR's Jason Moon. It explores the Bearbrook murders, and in several episodes, Rhonda is interviewed. The Bearbrook case involves large barrels found in a New Hampshire state park. In the barrels were bodies. It turns out those barrels were located near where Terry Rasmussen, a.k.a. Bob Evans, lived. I interviewed Rhonda because I felt that she knew the case like the back of her hand and was passionate about solving it. She remembers when she first learned about Denise's disappearance. I was at work. As a, I was a counselor in a school. Uh, I was at work the day the story broke in Manchester, New Hampshire, of that Denise Bowden, uh, is, is dis, uh, you know, her disappearance and her connection to a Bob Evans. So I was at work, and um, I have my phone on silent, but I did get notifications. You know, I had, I had, I still could hear that, and all of a sudden, I my phone just started chirping like crazy, and I realized that all these people were texting me, and. Um, I was finishing up a session with a child, and so I had to wait. But um, when I looked at my phone, you know, it was just 
text after text saying, did you see the news today or have you read at WMUR or do you see what, I think it was a union leader, you know, do you see, did you see what's uh, the story out of New Hampshire? And so I knew it must have been something pretty significant and uh, quickly went to it and found the story about Denise Bowden and I was flabbergasted because she, you know, I grew up, I don't know, eight miles from where she lived or something and never heard her name, never knew she was a missing person in New Hampshire. Um, And, you know, when we'd spent years at that point, my brother and I, you know, contacting families of the missing and trying to get people listed in NamUs who who hadn't been listed as missing. And so, you know, um, I was astonished to hear of her. And as I read the article um, and it said that, you know, she had left with her boyfriend, Bob Evans, um, my heart just stopped because um, uh, several years before that, in the summer of 2014, that name had come up when I had um, been talking to Ed Gallagher, the owner of the property where the barrels were found. And he had told me in that July that, um, you know, I'd asked him multiple times over the years. I think I started talking to him in 2011 or 12. And he had told me over the years different theories he had, but he never really mentioned anyone specifically. But in July of 2014, he had told me, uh, that he, one of the people that he'd wondered about was Bobby Evans, is how he said it. And I had asked him what made him um, come up with that name. And he said that, well, it was someone he knew that had done work there and he had dumped a lot of junk on Gallagher's property. And so, you know, because we had a name, you know, I specifically quizzed him about everything he could remember about Bob Evans. So um, I, I, uh, sat down, pulled up my interviews on my computer, started reading through everything that he had said about Bob Evans, because my brother and I had spent quite a bit of time after we got that name trying to find Bob Evans and never did. And so then I called the New Hampshire State Police cold case unit right from my office at school and said, and I just got the machine, but I just said, um, please, I know Bob Evans is a common name, but please tell me that's not the same Bob Evans that Ed Gallagher said uh, was a suspect in his mind um, in the Allenstown slaying. As I mentioned, the Bearbrook case consisted of two separate barrels that contained human remains. At first, the bodies inside were not traced to any missing persons in New Hampshire. With time and DNA technology, the Bearbrook murders would soon be solved. Investigators were able to pin the deaths on Terry Rasmussen. But when it came to Denise, there were no remains or traces left behind to help her family get answers to their questions about her disappearance. The family was wondering, how can someone who their daughter trusted be capable of such brutal murders? How did he get away with them? Why Denise? Where is Denise? Why out of all people did it happen to her? How exactly was she a part of Rasmussen's ordeal? And who even was Terry Rasmussen? I dug a little deeper to discuss how serial killers find their victims. As we know from the beginning of this episode, Rasmussen is introduced as Bob Evans. This is in fact one of the many different aliases he lived by. We know that technology has improved drastically in the past decades. In the 80s, it was fairly easy to create and collect different identities. Here is Colton Seal, who worked for the FBI for 22 years and is now a professor at New England College. One class that he specializes in is forensic psychology, connecting psychology to any issues relating to laws and the legal system alongside criminal justice as a whole. We first discussed how easy it was to collect different identities in the 80s. 
Obviously, is back in the 80s was way different than it is now. Now it's really hard to be able to do that. You still can, but it's a lot, lot more difficult. Um, so say, I know that he was arrested several times, and at one point they did make a connection based on his fingerprints with some, but then that, then he goes to another state and that's lost, right? Yeah. Because we didn't have really the, the National Fingerprint Database, the IAFIS database that we have now. Right, so states weren't connected, and obviously computer technology was in its infancy in a way back then. So, you know, most places barely even had computers, let alone computers that were connected to other places. There are different ways that it could be done. Um, it was really easy back then to make fake driver's licenses, and actually, I arrested one guy who was really good at it. Who Hit, they would go into the DMV and there was this stack of licenses that were getting ready to be made into licenses and a friend would distract the people while he'd go over and steal those and then they'd just make fake IDs and then once you have an ID then you could go into like social security and say here's who I am I've lost my social security card can you give me a new one right so you get you'd be able to get it that way um, you could People would also steal documents a lot and go in and use those to get new ones because there was no way to check whether they were authentic, really. So it was, or it was really difficult. So it was easy for people to do that. Um, back then, you know, we would... I worked under aliases a lot back then, doing undercover stuff and everything, and we'd just make fake IDs, and um, I could get on airplanes using a fake ID. Technology now that would help better detect false identities would be the National Fingerprint Database. Another reason as to why Rasmussen is deemed to be evil was because he was a serial killer. Usually serial killers tend to be the psychopathic type. In Seal's opinion, Rasmussen seems to show those psychopathic tendencies. What separates a normal person from a psychopath is how the brain functions. Serial killers are not just born killers. There are many factors that come into play for them to develop killing tendencies, like childhood trauma. Although not much is known about Terry Rasmussen, we are not sure where this developed. I think based on what I know about him, he kind of fall in the psychopathic type of serial killer, right? So he was exhibited the traits of a psychopath where he was on the surface likable, right? He was able to attract these people to him and kind of win people over, but then when they got to know him, they realized there was something off. But so the psychopaths are very good at portraying kind of glibness and likability on the surface, um, but then also underneath that, having no empathy or feeling for other people, right? And even though they generally know the difference between good and bad, they don't care, right? And so they end up, they because they don't feel that empathy, right? They don't have feeling like emptiness in a way, but they also have no control. So in terms of there's no guilt stopping them from doing stuff. So they end up killing for a couple reasons. Um, one is that they're very reactive. I guess they're prone to violence if somebody does something that they don't like. Um, and so that could be one reason to kill the others. Like I was getting at, they don't feel that attachment with other people, but they need excitement in their life and killing is the one way that they can actually get that right the rest of us would go play a sport but serial killers have to go to a different level what was so special about denise and his other victims how do serial killers pick their victims what kind of patterns or trends do we normally see serial killers do tend to favor specific 
types, I guess. Um, like there is one serial killer who's never been caught in the U.S., but all of his, I'm assuming his, um, since most serial killers are men, um, victims were women with red hair, say. Right? And with Rasmussen, it seemed to be women that he formed some attachment to, so that would have been his thing. Um, and you look at, like, Ted Bundy, his were college-age women and that, so... Um, Rasmussen seemed to be maybe a little bit older and with children and that. So all of them have their thing, and that seemed to have been his. How could Rasmussen hide his killing habits and live day by day in a normal functioning society? Because they're really good at knowing what other people expect or want from them. Right? They, don't, they don't have that empathy. They don't feel for other people, but they know what other people want. They recognize that other people feel empathy. So they're able to do things that draw that empathy out of other people and react superficially in a way, in a way that attracts people to them. So a lot of psychopaths are really good at doing that. Like, for example... Up to 20% of CEOs score pretty high on a psychopathy test, right? Because they're superficially able to have that charm and everything, and they also have no compunction about doing what they need to do to get to the top, so that helps for sure. But like I said, most circular psychopaths do on the surface know what other people want, so they attract other people to them and can live that life that appears normal, but they can only do it for a certain amount of time, like with Rasmussen, right, he had to keep moving on. To understand more about Denise Bowden, I want to tell you more about Bearbrook. The Bearbrook case consisted in the discovery of two barrels. Those two barrels were located in Bearbrook State Park, located in Allenstown, New Hampshire. One was found in the year of 1985, while the other was found 15 years later in the year of 2000, only being 100 yards away from each other. Four humans were contained in those big blue barrels. These barrels are usually used to send goods overseas, or just for storage use. As someone who were to discover these barrels, they might have thought that someone was just getting rid of junk, but the sad reality was finding humans within. The four victims were three little girls ranging from ages 10 to 2, and one woman in her 20s. Two of the girls were actually maternally related to the oldest victim. The third girl, three to four years old, was unrelated to the rest of the victims and still to this day has not been identified. All four victims' remains were either partially or completely skeletonized. This made it hard for investigators to give them a true identity. In order to making the connection to linking the Jane Doe's to their true identity, isotopes helped. Isotopes work in a way by using body tissues like nails, hair, bones, or teeth and testing them to figure out which region the human might have lived in or traveled to. The isotopes that were done for this investigation led to the identification that all four victims lived near the Atlantic coast. Because of the isotope technology, three of the Bearbrook victims were later identified as Mary Lee Honeychurch, who was 24, Mary Vaughn, who was 7, and Sarah McWaters, who was only 11 months. But 41 years later, there's still no sign of Denise Bowden. If you know any information that may help solve this case, contact the New Hampshire Cold Case Unit at 603-271-2663. I would like to thank everyone involved in this episode, from interviews to music and sounds, brought to you by Blue Dot Sessions.